First you told us only through you could we know God And if we dared to question, he wouldn't spare the rod For you we worked the soil, for you we dug the moors For you we shed our blood and fought so many pointless wars Now you try to tell us there's nothing we can do You say the world around us belongs fairly to the few but about six billion people no doubt will agree this world is our home not your property it's the commons our right of birth and you who would enclose the land all around the earth our future is your downfall when we cut this ball and chain you who'd sacrifice the public good for your private gain With our sweat we built the railroads Built cities on these shores But because you own the money You say that it's all yours We laid the phone lines and the pipelines And then right before our eyes You say these things are taxes paid for You now will privatize Privatize the hospitals Privatize the schools Privatize the prisons For all those who break your rules And preparing for the day when all the wells run dry You say you own the very rain That falls down from the sky But it's the commons Our right of birth And you who'd own the water All around the earth Our future is your downfall Only cut this ball and shame You who'd sacrifice the public good For your private gain You claim to own the harvest With your terminator seeds you claim to own the genomes of every animal that breeds. Good evening and welcome to Corporations and Democracy for August 18th, 2022. This is the program that examines how corporations dominate our democracy and what citizens are doing to replace corporate dominance with true democracy. I'm Steve Scalmanini with co-host Annie Esposito. The opinions expressed on Corporations and Democracy are those of our guests and the hosts, and not necessarily of the management of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. In today's program, we'll be discussing a new book by Paul Cienfuegos, longtime promoter and instructor of community rights. Uh, the book's title is How Dare We? Courageous Practices to Reclaim Our Power as Citizens. Also referred to as a layperson's guide to dismantling corporate rule in the United States. Paul's work on social issues began back in the 1970s. In the 90s, he realized that almost every issue he ever worked on was a mere symptom of corporate rule. And that's when he moved to Humboldt County and founded Democracy Unlimited of Humboldt County. That's D-U-H-C, Duck has a nickname. As director of Democracy Unlimited, he led dozens of first steps in dismantling corporate rule workshops across the country. At that time, he also founded a full-service online bookstore oriented toward social change caused, called 100 Fires Books. And that's where he stocks virtually every essential book that a community rights group may want to own. In 2011, Paul moved to Portland, Oregon from Humboldt County, where he helped launch Portland's first-ever community rights organization. It's called Community Rights PDX. And in 2017, he created something that for many years had only been a dream. That's a national support organization for community rights. And that's called Community Rights U.S. online at uh, communityrights.us. And he's now the longest-running community rights workshop leader in the nation. So let's have a look at this new book, How Dare We? 
Courageous Practices to Reclaim Our Power as Citizens. Paul Cienfuegos, welcome to Corporations and Democracy. What a pleasure to be on your show again and to get to speak to the two of you directly. Yes, thank you so much for coming and um, bringing your new book with you, the How Dare We. Uh, uh, we're getting a lot of good reactions to the title. <laughs> I guess I don't know why we're afraid of corporations, because we have so many regulations in place. They say that they're just, just restrained all the time, everything they want to do. So uh, how come there's a problem if we have all these regulations that are there to protect us? Because regulations are actually designed to not there to not be there to protect us. We were we were told that the regulatory agencies and regulatory law is how we rein in corporate harms, but in actuality, the reverse is true. Um, regulatory agencies were founded in the 1880s by the Attorney General at the time of the United States, and uh, he was working very closely with the railroad industries executives in one private meeting after another in the 1880s and they came up with a system a new system of law that would be designed to look like a bold response to citizen outrage about the harms being caused by the railroad industry but would actually distance we the people from having any real authority over railroad corporations and um, the system worked so well that in the decades that followed, the insurance agency industry, the food industries, the logging industries all um, demanded their own regulatory agencies. And we've ended up basically, in, in a nutshell, we've ended up with uh, everybody being forced to be single-issue activists around the issues that most concern them because they have to work through that issue, that industry's regulatory agency. And, um, and if you think about it, when you regulate something, you normalize it. You you make it, it. It's you don't you don't make some you don't regulate something that you're planning to ban. Let me put it that way, <laughs> right? And so corporations are doing all these harmful things all over the country all the time, from pipelines to fracking to clear cutting to GMOs and monocropping to you know tire incinerators and on and on and on. Just massive amounts of poison being poured into air, water, soil, our bodies, our food, all the time. Um, and all those things should have been banned a long time ago because they're toxic and carcinogenic, but instead they're regulated, which means that we get to, we get the, the outrageous irony of having scientists, government and corporate scientists, deciding what level of harm is safe and legal. And that's what a regulation does. It, it defines the level of harm how many parts per million of formaldehyde is okay to pour into the river from your wood production plant and how many parts per million of arsenic is okay to pour into the air from your mining operation etc etc and that becomes a regulation which legalizes and normalizes harm caused by corporations so if you now ask us saying it shouldn't be legal we're banning it and that's what our movement is about right there shouldn't be any poison <laughs> what a concept and I, I gather you've come across language that actually quotes these uh, people that that came up with this brilliant idea uh, that they actually knew they were doing it and they've said it in in plain English that this is uh, to dupe the folks out there 
this is all i mean there, there are quotes there are quotes from these individuals they're really quite amazing um about what they you know what they knew they were doing and how they were going to sell it to the public yeah and it's very effective it's so effective now that you hear um you hear food safety groups all the time currently saying monsanto has seized control of the usda or um you know warehouser has seized control of the forest service or whatever they didn't have to seize, seize control <coughs> the agencies have regulations which legalize everything they want to do the agency's regulations are written by a panel of people made up of government and corporate leaders sitting around the table and the agencies are directed by corporate leaders so who needs to seize anything right <laughs> this, is, this is this is a this is, it's a corporate uh, playing field from top to bottom it's a corporate playing field and then so activists say oh you know the agency isn't isn't protecting our health and welfare because they're letting so-and-so sit as the head of the agency from this so-and-so corporation no they're not paying attention they're not paying attention to, to their history these agencies are designed to fool us and to tie us in knots as single issue activists and we need to get out of the regulatory system as quickly as possible into what we call defining law not regulatory law but defining law defining what a corporation is allowed to do and to be mm-hmm. and we used to and for the first century in the united states that is what we had so this isn't even a pie in the sky idea it's this is this was our first century we just we need to learn our, a little bit of our history from you here too um would, would you say that well i i think most of the things that you can look at that are wrong right now there's some kind of corporate involvement like the with the climate crisis of course and the threat to our democracy we have all these politicians that are bought uh health housing do you think that we could blame everything on the corporations oh i think with very few exceptions virtually every crisis going on in this country and in the world has to do with corporate power with very few exceptions yeah i think i think corporate executives aren't really that interested in the abortion issue um I think that they're happy to um, to racially they they were happy to racially integrate workplaces many decades ago. That movement was not anathema to them. It made for a more peaceful workplace ultimately. And you know, they, they don't what they don't like what corporate leaders don't like is is um, uncertainty. So you know, if there's thousands of people marching in the streets, they don't like that because they don't know how it's going to affect the bottom line. Uh-huh. So. But, yeah, indeed, you know, what, what they want is the guaranteed market that they right. have now and expect to have in the future, and anything gets in the way of that. And, yeah, I mean, and they tend to spend money in the here and now planning right. for the market they expect to have at some future date. And if that market, anything changes in that market, or if it gets worse or drops, they have spent money they're not going to get returns on, and that is anathema to them. Yeah, and they plan way in advance. I mean, they do serious long-term planning, whereas activist groups in governments do not. <laughs> so they've got it. There's a pretty good list in your book, How Dare We, uh, uh, on page 43, uh, a list of uh, uh, ways that you common sense rules for controlling corporations, it's called. And there's a lot of, uh, in these rules, it's sort of it's very telling on what our problems with the corporations are um do you want to talk a little bit about that what are some of the things the specific things that are going on with corporations that make them so harmful 
Do you want to hear the list of, of that we used to have of prohibitions and requirements against corporations? Or are you asking a different question? Oh, is, it was um, it was rules for controlling corporations on page forty-three. It just yeah, you had all these these if if yeah. we could reform them the way they were in the beginning, and each one of those right. kind of explains something that's that's bothering us right now with them. Well, exactly. So um, the way I li- this was originally a flyer that we used to pass out and so it starts by listing all of these supposedly outrageous ways that we could control corporations and then at the end of the list it says um if you don't already know your history perhaps you should ask well, that's not the right paragraph every <laughs> single rule listed was the law of the land in these united states of america after the american revolution these were all state laws mostly repealed as a direct result of hundreds of supreme court decisions beginning in 1819 so you know, you read. I wanted people to read this list and be shocked, and think, "Gosh, that would be great to have." And then find out, well, we had all of these list, these rules, defining, not regulating corporations for a whole century, such as, no corporation shall be allowed to participate in any way in the political process at any level of government. No corporate financing of candidates or ballot initiatives. No corporate lobbying of elected or appointed government officials or of those running for office at any level of government. No political ads by corporations. Directors and stockholders of corporations shall be held personally and individually liable for all harms and deaths. That's my favorite one right there. (laughs) Yes. That such persons directed or held stock in that corporation. Yeah, I always think to myself like the, the, um, I mean, it's all, it's ancient history by now, but the, the British Petroleum BP mega oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico so many years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if if the if the executives of BP had known that if there was a major ecological disaster, the directors themselves would be held financially and and legally and personally responsible. Every one of them, that their private assets could be seized, that their corporation could be dissolved. They never would have done it. But you know, the system of law now is. It wraps all of these protections around corporations, so they don't have to worry about any of this stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. Another one in that yeah. list is uh, no corporate money to charities, so that yeah. we don't become dependent on generosity from large corporations. I think that's a kind of important one. I'd, I'd just like to uh, mention that next month we're going to be doing a show with Chuck Collins on that subject specifically because his group, uh, Inequality Incorporated, just put out a study on that. It's called Gilded Giving and it's all about how corporate giving is skewing our social structure in exactly the wrong way. And and just as a sideline, I'll mention that Chuck Collins also has really endorsed your book. He says, uh, Paul Cienfuegos is the Thomas Paine of our time. <laughs> kind of unbelievable. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I, think that, I think he's right. You're good on you there. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Annie. That's sweet. Um, yeah, and I'm a I'm a huge fan um, of of uh, Chuck Collins, but it, it, corporations worked for corporate directors worked for thirty or forty years throughout the second half of the 1800s to convince the Supreme Court that donations to nonprofits should be legal. It was Ill- it was a felony. It wasn't just illegal; it was a so felony, felony. Um, because we the people cannot continue to have business corporations as our creations as our state subordinate creations which is what they actually are if we become financially dependent on them through our 
nonprofits, our advocacy organizations, our candidates, etc. Mm-hmm. So it, it it breaks the subordinate um, relationship, and that was not the, the culture of the late 1800s. People understood this generally that you can't let corporations um, you can't become dependent as a culture on business corporations. Mm-hmm. Then it would be a disaster for the democratic process. All right. Now, meanwhile, most of us are spending a lot of time signing petitions. And what do you think about that, Paul? <laughs> um, well, I'm one of those um, unpopular souls out there who says that if you um, if you're signing online petitions to corporate directors to beg them to do the right thing, if you're suing corporations, if you're showing up at shareholder meetings and have to try to pass shareholder resolutions, if you're picketing. Um, if you're lobbying corporations, if you're doing all of these things that we are all used to doing, you're missing the bigger picture. You're, you're in a diversionary place at this point where you're not actually getting at root cause because um, these are all these are all tactics that corporations use to, to, to again to tie us in knots. Right? If we're we if we understand, which most of us don't, unfortunately, that we are the sovereign people that we the people are the ultimate deciders and i'm speaking constitutionally now i'm not making up some anarchist utopian theory here the constitution is very clear we the people are the sovereign people which means we have self-governing authority we have the authority to rule that's what that means sovereignty and government is required to serve us it has duties and responsibilities to us constitutionally Corporations, business corporations, are required to serve us. They have duties and responsibilities to us constitutionally. We delegate responsibility to state governments to bring corporations into existence through what used to be called charters and now are called Articles of Incorporation. And those are subordinating documents. Corporations don't have any right to exist. They have a privilege to exist through the state chartering process. Most people don't understand that anymore. But they did for the first century, century and a half in the United States. We And when, when governments no longer are serving us and providing those, um, acting with responsibility to us, we the people have the constitutional right and authority to withdraw our consent from our government and when we withdraw our consent, the government is no longer functioning legitimately under the constitutional structure. And at that point, we have to do something. We have to take ourselves seriously enough to do something else, to elect different people, to restructure our government, whatever, because we're in charge. And so when I see activists, single-issue activists, begging and pleading with corporate leaders and government leaders it just makes me want to cry because that's not where our power is mm-hmm. well so why don't we follow up on what you've been talking about touching on here and reclaim our real history here what about what about two national constitutions we had one and then another one yeah <laughs> surprise yeah these are not this is not a conspiracy theory this is fact and you can look it up um in 1776, um, the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union uh, started to be drafted, and um, it ended up being successfully drafted as our permanent constitution, the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. 
It was supposed to be our long-term constitution, but unfortunately it did not serve the interests of the power holders, the rich elite who wanted to replicate empire the way Britain, you know, they had come from Britain and they wanted to become the new the new um, lords, I guess. And so the original constitution had no standing courts, it had no Supreme Court, it had no executive branch, it had no U.S. Senate, it had 13 states who met in Congress assembled, with the phrase, when they wanted to talk to each other, they came together in Congress assembled, and they talked about whatever they needed to talk about, and then they went back to their states, which is where most lawmaking happened. There was very little happening at the federal level, level legislatively at that point. Congress was just the place that the states talked to each other. Um, and that did not work for those who wanted to um, create empire, who wanted to build, they wanted to build a national army, and they wanted to start um, occupying and invading other countries, surprise, surprise. And the way the Constitution of the time was written, all 13 states had to agree, all 13 state legislatures had to agree to forming a, a military. And that was too much hassle for the empire builders. And so for a whole variety of reasons, um, they tell the public and they tell the state legislatures that they're going to sit together in Philadelphia in a convention and they're going to amend the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. That's what they were um, That's what they were given a mandate to do legally. And the, and the existing Constitution had a way to amend itself, just as our current one does, and instead, they went behind closed doors for a couple months. They locked the doors. They threw out the entire Constitution illegally. And they wrote a brand new Constitution, which we now call the Constitution. <laughs> and we went from strong state, weak federal, to strong federal, weak state. That's really interesting. And, and you say that many state constitutions have that relic in their uh, state constitutions that... Uh, Talk about the people being the power. Yeah, I mean, almost every single state constitution in the United States has this remnant language that um, I will happily read you a couple of. Um, you probably already have the page open as well. So, for example, the Iowa State Constitution, which I've, where I've done a lot of work over the last years, begins with um, Article 1, all political power is inherent in the people. Government is instituted for the protection, security, and benefit of the people, and they have the right at all times to alter or reform the same, the government, whenever the public good may require it. So there it is. All political power is inherent in the people, right? We're on top. New Hampshire Constitution. All men are born equally free and independent. All government of right originates from the people, is founded in consent, and institute for the common general good. The people of the state have the sole and exclusive right of governing themselves as a free, sovereign, and independent state. That's New Hampshire's constitution currently. Pennsylvania's state constitution begins with, All power is inherent in the people, and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their peace, safety, and happiness. For the advancement of these ends, they have at all times an inalienable and indefeasible right to alter, reform, or abolish their government in such manner as they may think proper. And, you know, I could go on and on. Each state constitution has different, you know, different history. Um, the state was created at a completely different time. But that's who we are. So, We're born in revolution. 
and we've forgotten who we are, and so we're not taking care of our responsibility. We have a lot of responsibilities that we're ignoring. We have the responsibility to rein in corporations harming us. We have the responsibility to tell our state, local, and federal governments that they're not serving us properly. And if they don't, we need to act as, as a revolutionary, you know, created people should. But uh, doesn't our, our current constitution, the second one, doesn't it give us uh, three branches of government with checks and balances? It does, and supposedly they're all co-equal, um, but that went out the window in the in the early 1800s. I forget the date of the Supreme Court decision, Marbury versus Madison. I believe it's 1809. I don't know if either one of you knows this, early 1800s. But it was a Supreme Court decision where the Supreme Court gave itself the authority to overrule congressional lawmaking as unconstitutional. They, they alone gave themselves the authority to say, this new law that you just passed in Congress is unconstitutional, and it's just thrown out immediately, can't be appealed. And so from, 18, from the early 1800s to the present, we haven't had three co-equal branches. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court can overrule everybody. I'd like to add that 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 moment in time was when Congress could have acted. Well, they 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 could act now. And they could still, yes. They can't overrule a decision. What they do is they pass new legislation, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that forces the Supreme Court to respond again. They can add, the, the, the Constitution doesn't say we need that we have to have nine Supreme Court justices. That's right. Yeah. Supreme Court justices could be added. They could get term limits. There's all sorts of things that could be done. Something only mentioned in recent years I've read is that the uh, the, the legislature, Congress, could decide what issues the Supreme Court does not have authority over. I didn't know that, but I I'm, I, I believe you. Yeah, that's that's read that. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think I've ever done it, but they could. Yeah. yeah. So, so instead we have what you're, you're calling judge-made law, and there's like, a whole, this has been going on forever, and there's more and more, I guess the most recent one that happened to us and people are familiar with is a Citizens United one that uh, gives corporations free speech uh, rights to buy politicians, I guess might be the way you would sum it up. Uh, that wasn't Citizens United, Annie, that was... Um that's what everybody's taught by groups like Move to Amend, and I don't know why they say that, but they got corporations got free speech and the right to buy politicians in 1976 in the Buckley versus Vallejo Supreme Court decision, and a year later in 1977 in a Supreme Court decision, I'm forgetting Bellotti is in the title. I forget the full name of the court case. Mm-hmm. They got the right to um, to influence and manipulate ballot initiative. Mm-hmm. type elections mm-hmm. so free speech for corporations has been a guaranteed right since 76 in elections well free speech and and, and um, well yeah. and uh, the ability to donate I mean, the exact opposite of what the first hundred years of the you know the law in the nation they were, was. Banned. They were banned because yeah. people understood what the proper role of a business corporation was mm-hmm. and believe it or not these 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 corporations as they were you chartered uniquely one at a time early on by the state legislatures. Not only did they include this requirement in prohibition language that we're reading from in the book, um, but they had language like the corporation shall serve one social need and cause no harm. That was standard wow. for every corporate charter. 
And so one social needs. So you couldn't, you know, Warehouser starts as a logging company, subdivides and becomes a real estate company, subsidize, you know, or actually, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm wrong. It starts as a railroad corporation. Then it ha- it sub it subdivides into into uh, logging companies because now it's been given it's been given gazillions of acres of right, forest for yeah. free by for the free. U.S. government mm-hmm. in exchange for putting in the railroads. It's given literally half of the nation state's land, mm-hmm. the western con- states, and it becomes railroad corporations. It becomes mining corporations. It becomes real estate corporations. Mm-hmm. All of that would have been illegal. You know, there's a, a, a wonderful a small D Democrat in our community, Jan Edwards, the Point Arena, and she's the Alliance for Democracy. And she made a huge timeline about all these Supreme Court decisions that gave more and more and more corporate control over the decades and centuries. Have you seen that? <laughs> well, I use it. I use it in my in every workshop that I lead, and I'm proud to say that um, Jan Edwards entered this movement. Originally, when she came to a workshop that I was leading on the Mendocino Coast, oh great, yeah. decades ago, and um, she left that. She she actually wrote an endorsement statement that's on my website that said, "This workshop was as profound as an experience as my fir- as having my first child." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she had figured out how to use a law library and she created that incredible document yeah yeah and you look at i mean there's wonderful things i was it was in 1919 that corporations were required to maximize returns for the shareholders for the first time that became law well because of a judge-made law though was it not judge-made law yeah judge-made law and laws are not supposed to be made by the judiciary branch yeah Legislative it's fascinating to think of these issues of judge-made law as we enter a new era of originalism at the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah. Because so much of this is judge-made law. Yeah. And yeah not, back not to mention the Constitution. People are three-fifths of a person. Yeah. You know? Well, it goes back to that, right? Yeah. Because that's, that's still in our Constitution, incredibly. No. Three-fifths of a person is in the document. Actually, and then overruled or, you know, by the 14th Amendment, whichever one it was, 15th. I, I, I wish I knew exactly how this worked. Yeah. But all I can tell you is it's in the, the existing Constitution that we mm-hmm. share with kids in schools. Mm-hmm. It talks about three-fifths of a person. Mm-hmm. Well, we should talk a little bit, too, about um, the Bill of Rights. We do have that, um, but that doesn't protect us from corporations? No, because the Bill of Rights came years after the uh, the second Constitution was drafted and passed, and it and it came because when the men in behind locked doors finished their months of work passing the second or writing and approving the second U.S. Constitution, they had to get it um, approved by all the state legislatures, and the states were not happy at all, as you as, as you might remember from a few minutes ago they had been given the mandate to amend the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union, and instead they come back to the states with a brand new document. So the states were pissed. Um, this, that was not the mandate they'd been given. And the, the, the so-called founding fathers were, were forced to write a whole bunch of new rights for people, and that became the, the first ten amendments of the U.S. Constitution, they weren't passed with the Constitution. That's why they're amendments to the Constitution. They're passed in the years that followed, 
because they were forced to to get the states to approve the to the uh, to ratify the second constitution. And then, of course, it it protects you. The Bill of Rights protects you against the government, not against a corporation. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, I don't know, Steve, if you want to give out the phone number. Well, I, I do, actually. So we're a little past the bottom of the hour. And if you'd like to call in to ask any questions and comment on the air, the number is uh, 707-895-2448. Again, 895-2448. That's in area code 707. And we're talking with Paul Sanfuegos about the new book that uh, first of, that he's written and was published, I think, just a few months ago called How Dare We? Courageous Practices to Reclaim Our Power as Citizens. And so now for the best part is there's people who are actually doing something about this, right? The Community Rights Movement. Tell us how that started. So, well, it started in um, in a tiny little township of about 500 people in, in Pennsylvania. Um, that was a private, primary, primary economy of that township was um, family hog farms. And they found out about, I don't know, 25 or so years ago, I've lost track, 1999, something like that, um, that they were going to be the proud recipients of a giant hog farm factory with thousands and thousands of hogs locked in a giant building for their entire lives from a mega corporation from the Deep South that was expanding into Pennsylvania and other states, late 90s. And um, they spent a couple of years trying to stop it using existing Pennsylvania government environmental and, and, and uh, animal regulations. That's yeah. with all the hog waste that goes with it spread on fields in the area right. and blowing in the and air. When you're, when you're a family hog farmer, you probably have a couple dozen hogs. You don't have that crisis. Uh -huh. You're growing yeah. food for your hogs and you're dealing with the poop from your hogs. The scale is fine for the land, mm -hmm. so it's not a problem. But when you go from family hog farms in the 90s to, you know, thousands in a single building, um, the farmers were pretty pissed. So they went, they met with the governor, they met with the head of the various agencies in Pennsylvania, in the capital, and, all, you know, all they got was, you know, thanks for coming, we're writing regulations for hog farming in the state, would you like to contribute to the regulatory process? To, you know, and they're like, no, we don't want to regulate hog farming. Again, regulating is legalizing and normalizing. We want to ban corporate hog farm. We want to ban corporate ownership of, of farms in the state of Pennsylvania, which, of course, the governor was not interested at all in that conversation. So they went home empty-handed, and after a couple years of trying to stop them through the regulatory process, they started interacting with a public interest law firm called the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, or SELDA, um, who was who up until that point had just helped communities in Pennsylvania with regulatory law. Um, but they were starting to hear about this new kind of rights-based lawmaking, um, which hadn't even been named yet. They were the first people to write local laws to help communities. It ended up being called the community, community rights lawmaking, um, a new kind of paradigm in lawmaking. You know, local governments claiming the legal authority to protect health, safety, and welfare through locally enforceable laws by banning harmful corporate activities. And um, so the, this tiny township bucked the system, and they passed the very first community rights ordinance. Um, overwhelmingly, 
meeting by the township supervisors and then a couple dozen other townships in the state followed with almost identical ordinances and the movement just took off at that point in pennsylvania isn't there something called dylan's law that can undo all of that so there are three structures of law that are hidden in plain sight in the united states that make it virtually impossible for make it basically illegal for a local community or a local government to protect its own health safety and welfare um, lawfully um, and those three things are corporations claiming constitutional rights which is corporate personhood and all sorts of other constitutional rights that corporations now claim um, states state preemption which is states preempting local governments from passing laws to protect themselves and this most obscure one called dylan's rule um john forrest dylan was a late 1800s iowa state supreme court justice um and he had an idea as a justice that the the proper relationship between states and locals is that of parent to teacher up to parent to child or landlord to tenant and so literally all of a sudden out of the blue we have a whole new system of law called dylan's rule where you can't lo local governments no longer have the authority because dylan's rule has taken away the authority of a local government um, and treating it as a tenant of the state literally a, a landlord tenant relationship um, and so that becomes dylan's rule he starts to use it in his iowa state supreme court rulemaking in the late 1800s the state the u.s supreme court starts to integrate dylan's rule into some of its cases in the early 1900s and away we go so state and federal preemption dylan's rule and uh and corporate constitutional rights it's a triple whammy that makes it virtually impossible and illegal for a community to pass a law to protect its health safety and welfare against harmful corporate or government uh, activities and you know and it's really extraordinary because like you've probably well steve you um you were on the city council for years and mm -hmm. what i'm familiar with in, in humble county where i used to live is you're sworn in on your first day of city council and and you give an oath which includes language at least in humble county about protecting the health safety and welfare of the community mm -hmm. did you have that phrase mm -hmm. okay so it's probably universal it's probably in every local swearing in of a local of elected official i don't know how universal it is but what Actually, I, I, I remember thinking I, and i i can't recall exactly one point that i found interesting at that time um is uh, which constitution do you swear to the national one or the state one because the 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 incorporation of the city is a state issue but some of the language i think is about uh, refers to the national government oh, that's interesting so which one makes it makes more sense i've never thought about it we should look this up uh -huh. yeah but the crazy thing is that you're swearing to protect the health safety and welfare of your community and you're banned from protecting the health safety for, yes. and welfare of your community yes exactly and local government officials don't know this mm -hmm. and you know kind of the the additional really tragic piece of this is when a big hard issue comes up and corporations want to come in and do serious damage through something that is entirely legal and normalized through regulations mm -hmm. and a local government is besieged by local citizens who've all who've started the friends of the so-and-so river or citizens against the so-and-so project mm -hmm. out of the blue you know one crisis at a time it's how 
activism unfortunately works in this country still and you know what and you find that your local government leaders can't or won't help you and sometimes they just seem disinterested and sometimes they said we can't do anything we're sorry and sometimes they really try and they find out from their local attorney they can't do anything and most of them don't realize that they're legally prohibited from stopping that activity okay we have our first call coming in let's hold on and see uh, uh what this caller has to say hello call your live on the air what hi hi so great to hear the truth spoken uh clearly regarding the law constitution and politics mm-hmm. um one thing i've been thinking and i'm hoping it's not a leap maybe it needs a bridge or a boat but um you know in terms of addressing what we need to address in terms of you know destroying our planet for our children and grandchildren to me a really good simple clear plan is just and it, it shouldn't take that long it should like once a month once every six months at the most you know at the least um just shut down decommission dismantle the five most toxic factories and then give the uh, people that want to keep working there the employees that want to keep working there the opportunity to be part of that and give them a 15 percent pay raise what you said about the stockholders and the ceos mm-hmm. right on better than what i was thinking also um shut down the five worst uh, most corrupt financial institutions anyway there'd just be two or three or four areas like that where once every six months you know you just stop the five worst first and if we kept doing that people could gradually figure out because uh, the government trying to manage and legislate you know transportation you know managing how people are going to eat and move themselves about instead of doing their simple job you know which is addressing crime um you know is is ridiculous and the whole thing has gotten so obfuscated so people need to manage their own lives and and the and the crimes that are being committed at every level especially at the huge level Okay, uh, just need to be stopped. Let's see what Paul has to say about that, and thanks yeah. for your call. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for that. I think I would go a little further than what you're actually suggesting, and I would kind of pull in historical facts. Um, rather than just going after the, a handful every few months of the worst companies, let's look at our history, and for the first century of the United States, Um, state legislatures wrote laws that required a certain bottom line of behavior of all corporations. So today what we would do is our state legislature would write new chartering legislation in every state that would require a certain level of ecological sustainability practices from every business that they that has the privilege of incorporating. It would it would set a minimum standard for labor practices. It would set minimum wages it would set all sorts of other minimum requirements for all business corporations right and so and you'd give them six months or a year to to get into shape or you would pull their charters right so that's that's using our existing system of law that we already used for a century that's how we would do what you've described the other thought i have is that the way that again using existing 
structures of law with us as the sovereign, we the people as the sovereign, it's it's about time that we start using our, our eminent domain laws properly. Eminent domain is seizing private property for a public sur- public purpose or public good. So if a corporation is causing harm, there's absolutely no reason that a state government couldn't seize that property and turn it into something else or it couldn't say or it could say to the board of directors and the management of so and so corporation you have one year to clean up your toxic effluent and get it down to zero you have one year to 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 figure out how to empower your workers so they have real authority on the job um and if and and that's fine if you can do that and but if you can't we're going to seize the factory and we'll run it in it we'll run it ourselves and we'll find different owners we'll run it based on these new sets of standards that we're implementing mm-hmm. because eminent domain is there for us to use but instead it's used to build shopping centers and you know pipelines mm-hmm. at this point you know, it's appalling. And, and you may know that issue is a hot topic in the Mendocino County right now particularly on the coast uh, and this is, involves a railroad corporation who claimed it had eminent domain rights and obtained some properties uh, in the Fort Bragg area. And that claim has been disputed and is now, as of just less than a week ago, in uh, in clear writing, it has been disputed by the agency that would normally uh, uh, back that up and grant it, which is the California Public Utilities Commission. So the future is questionable now for that. And uh, there is also an inland case of the same company trying to obtain a private property belongs to an individual just outside of the city of Willits. And, uh, And there is a hearing on that just tomorrow morning. I don't know what that new document, as of a week ago, is going to what effect it will have. But uh, the, we were in the throes of that issue of uh, who can who can use mm-hmm. eminent domain uh, in, in this county right now. There are some examples of that. You know, I want to go back a minute to the the Pennsylvania family hog farms and how they passed all these local rules to uh, to help them, and yet they were being. Um, uh, pummeled by you know the state because they're not allowed to do their own local municipal rules, um, but they did anyway, and they got away with it. And that's what you're recommending, right? Do it anyway. Recommending yes, these laws. And if you've been listening carefully to what I've said to this point over the last hour, you probably have figured out that the laws that these 200 communities in a dozen states have already passed, these community rights ordinances that are locally enforceable are not yet legal. They're obviously passed at the local level, they're enforceable at the local level, but they violate state preemption, Dillon's rule, and corporate constitutional rights. So from a state or federal government perspective, they are not legal. Um, And for most people, they'll just throw up their hands at that point and say, well, then it's hopeless. And I would point out that if you look at Prop 215 in California, Um, How did Prop 215 happen? It was citizens organized a state ballot initiative to make something legal that was illegal. And to this day is still illegal under federal law. (laughs) That's the cannabis initiative for (laughs) those those few that might not know that, but that's (laughs) Prop 215. Medical marijuana. Mm -hmm. Decades and decades ago, right, voters of Mm -hmm. California legalized medical marijuana, even though it's federally, what they did is federally preempted they passed a law that violated federal law 
and they got away with it because the movement built very quickly other states passed medical marijuana laws and it just got completely out of hand very quickly by the federal government so now we have what like 30 35 40 states <laughs> some kind of legal marijuana law and the feds still consider marijuana a class one felony um but they lost right and so this is a model that we have to remember that when citizens organize and mobilize and push back against unjust law right this is withdrawing our consent right this is the the activists medical marijuana activists in california withdrew their consent and said screw the federal government and its class one laws about marijuana we're going to pass a law that's illegal mm -hmm. let um, me mention uh, again the number to call in here 895-2448 if you'd like to uh, ask our guest a question this is uh we're interviewing <clears throat> paul cianfuegos today about his new book how dare we and uh, if you'd like to get in on the conversation again 895-2448 in I have, code 707 sorry steve to interrupt but i have not once real i'm realizing had a chance to talk about where you can get my book so please really important so um you can believe it or not you can get it at amazon no uh, Get it <laughs> that's one of the few words we don't use on this program yeah the fcc won't let us use that word <laughs> we have um, some lovely local bookstores here who would order it yes. for you. what i want you to do is to buy it from your local bookstore um and make a note right now write this down if you're listening and you want to buy it from your local bookstore the book is available through ingram distribution which is what every local bookstore uses to buy its books wholesale so the book is available at a full discount to your local bookstore through Ingram. Just let them know that, and they can provide that book to you. And the price for the book is $17.76, $17.76. We picked that price very purposefully. How appropriate. We want yeah. a revolutionary <laughs> price for our book. So, um, so buy it from your local bookstore. If you want more information from our website, you can go to communityrights.us slash how dare we www.communityrights.us forward slash how dare we and there's more information there and you can order it directly from me if you want to go that route um and my one request is that if you if you um if you buy it from amazon you pledge to write a review on the amazon website after you read it okay and then at the end of the show uh, we'll, we'll give we'll give you at the end of the show, we'll give the um, your website and everything, so and repeat that. So, um, so you were talking about uh, two fifteen, uh, the cannabis law in California uh, that le legalizes for uh, some kinds of restricted use, you know, recreational use. Um, it's it's totally federally illegal, and we did it anyway, and we got away with it. And actually, you found that the local illegal laws that have been made by municipalities to protect their own communities have had a pretty good success rate statistically uh with withstanding the you know the the quote unquote legal challenges to their That's Ill right. illegal laws about 200 communities in a dozen states have passed our community rights locally enforceable ordinances rights-based laws that ban that have banned fracking the one that Mendocino, I should say, we haven't said this yet, Mendocino County is the only county in the state of California that has ever passed a community rights ordinance. They passed it through the ballot box with a comfortable margin. Um, if I remember right, it was called the Right to Water and Self-Government Ordinance. Uh -huh. 
but it was about banning fracking. Mm-hmm. The right to water being that if fracking is allowed, it's going to harm your water. It's mm-hmm. going to harm human access to water, and it's going to harm nature. It's going to harm the rivers it's themselves. And in fact, you did a few workshops here in the county uh, yep. in the run-up to that initiative. Yep. And then that's been on the books for, gee, it's over a decade, I think, now. Yeah, I did a, I did a countywide roadshow. We did like eight or ten events over mm-hmm. a couple weeks mm-hmm. before the vote. Yeah. Your, your county is a, is a leader in the whole in the whole state around community rights. And then uh, we also, California is also a state that has uh, an initiative privileges to uh, referendum and initiatives, which I guess some but not all states have that ability. Just a little over half of the states have ballot initiative possibilities. Yeah. And they most of them won those during the populist era of the late 1800s, early 1900s, and they were fought against by the state legislatures. State government did not want the public to have direct democracy. <laughs> that was not something. This, when this, whenever this topic comes up, I like to plug a guy by the name of Hiram Johnson, I think it is, the governor at that time. I get Hiram Johnson and Hiram Walker mixed up. Excuse me, you know, one one, one makes 86 proof of beverage and the other was going to California. <laughs> well, you can but tap was, into them both, right? But he, he was a, a progressively, you know, elected governor in the in 19, very late teens or early 20s. And, uh, and he pushed hard for and helped bring about the initiative and referendum laws in the state of California. That's great to hear that a governor supported that. I'll bet that was somewhat unusual at the time. But I don't know that history that well. Um, I I think that in all the organizing you've done, we're telling people to uh, run out and make some illegal laws right now to to protect themselves. Uh, What kind of tips do you have for organizing? I, I know you're really concerned about teamsters and turtles together overcoming class differences do you want to talk a little bit about some of the things people should bear in mind when they go out to to protect their communities well i mean these days with um with liberals and progressives um on one side and conservatives republicans QAnons, trumpers on the other more than any time in my life and i'm close to becoming an elder um divide and conquer is working better than ever in terms of keeping the left and the right from talking to each other um and i think it's an emergency situation that we're in i work with conservatives all over the country in the community rights movement more conservative communities have passed these laws than progressive communities and lefties have a hard time believing me when i say that i work with trump supporters all the time at least i did until covid Mm-hmm. When everything let me let me slip in something with those those farming communities that you mentioned that where yeah. this uh, uh, movement began in Pennsylvania around 20 years ago uh, in the rural parts of Pennsylvania. I mean, these were very conservative communities, yeah. and they wanted to conserve their way of life and, I, I and would their bet economic you futures. That, I would bet you that in 2020, Trump signs were about the only signs in these small towns mm-hmm. and probably then in 2024 these are what what the left needs to understand i'm guessing that most people who are listening to this interview are of our left of center but maybe not everybody um and what you need to know is you got to get over your terror or, or your whatever it is of talking to people on the right side of the political spectrum there is 
enormous overlap of concerns and, and needs um, between left and right. And what the left doesn't understand is that right-wing state and federal elected officials do a very poor job of representing right-wing voters mm-hmm. in the same way that liberal elected officials do a very poor job of representing liberal voters in both in both cases these days they mostly do a good job of representing giant corporations as their primary constituencies mm-hmm. so if we if we need to separate we need to start remembering start to th- start to understand that right-wing elected officials and trump you know all the people that trump i mean we're in a very obviously we're in a very very scary time politically i don't want to you know um say you know, anything different but something like 10 or 15 million people who voted for trump in 2020 voted for bernie sanders in the primary right mm-hmm. they were so you know let's not forget these things oh, there's a lot million statistic tens of millions of people were whether they voted for bernie or for trump they were voting for throw a bomb into the works what we have isn't working mm-hmm. right can't it neither it, from their perspective these other guys couldn't possibly be worse so um, we have to remember that there's a lo- enormous amount of over- overlap between mm-hmm. left and right wing voters. We need to figure out how to start working together. It is urgent. We have one and a half minutes left in the program. Would you like to go back to uh, some of the locations people can assess the book and get further information online about uh, your programs and your website? So I am pretty darn proud of my book, How Dare We? Courageous Practice practices to reclaim our power as citizens it was just recently published it's dozens couple dozen essays and speeches that i've written over the last years um it's a it's a very easy and empowering read um my your best bet is to go to your local bookstore and ask for it and tell them that they can get the book through ingram distribution which is their main distributor um or you can go to amazon it's listed there if you get it from amazon uh, you have to pledge to me to write a review. <laughs> so please, <laughs> listeners, if you go uh, there. Or you can also go to our website at Community Rights US, and you can order it directly from me. Um, all three options are just fine with me. www.communityrights.us slash how dare we. Communityrights.us slash how dare we. So buy it from me. Buy it from your local bookstore. Buy, oh, and buy two and give one to your local library. Mm-hmm. There Super. you go. Okay, Paul Sanfuegos, thanks for being our guest today and uh, taking that one call. And it's been a, a great to have you on the air with us. It's a delight to be with the two of you again. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.